We come again to God's Word this morning. We'll be looking at Psalm 119, verses 33 to 40. Uh, we began considering Psalm 119 uh, a short time ago. We're not going to be going through all 22 octaves uh, as we look at this psalm. But our particular concern right now has to do with uh, the place of the Word of God in our worship of God. And a kind of an overarching theme has been how uh, the Word of God uh, is always designed to lead us to obedience, to know the to know the will of God, to know the ways of God, as well as to know God. And so we need to be reading God's Word with these things in mind, as well as understanding that God's Word itself is His primary and powerful means of grace in our lives to work in us what is pleasing in his sight. So Psalm 119, reading verses 33 to 40, which we have just sung parts of this particular passage. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts and your righteousness Give me life. Let's pray. Lord God, as we come and consider this passage this morning, as well as other parts of your word that pertain to this passage and how this passage pertains to other parts of your word, we do pray for the work of your Holy Spirit, giving us that spiritual wisdom and understanding so that in understanding your will and the knowledge of your will, we can actually live those lives that are worthy of, of you, Almighty God, worthy of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Father, uh, help us again to understand as we come to Scripture that uh, we cannot truly understand all that it means and the depth of its meaning apart from the work of your Spirit. Again, as we come to your word this morning, help us to know that it is your word uh, concerning who you are and concerning what you desire of us, both in knowing you and in knowing your ways. And so we pray for that. Again, Father, as we come to your word, uh, give us humble, teachable hearts, as well as that concern expressed in the Beatitudes. As we come to your word, enable us to hunger and thirst for righteousness, knowing that f- the food from Scripture is that which ultimately satisfies. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. As I begin this morning, uh, and even, even before I begin, precisely begin this morning, let me encourage you to have your Bibles nearby, your Bibles open, available to turn to a couple of passages that I want us to visit and look at in the context of this particular passage. Now, of course, this comes in the book of Psalms. And uh, as I was thinking about this morning, I, I wanted us to 
remember something about the book of Psalms in terms of its totality. Uh, and I'm going to put this under the idea of emergency crisis and emergency preparedness. That is to say, uh, some weeks back, we looked at what I called, quote, help me God kinds of prayers. God, help me. Help me now. Help me. I'm in desperate straits. Help me now prayers. And we can put that into the emergency crisis category of the different psalms and different petitions we find in the psalms uh, in, in, in all of the Psalter. A very large part of the psalms contain that element of prayer. Uh, praying to God, come, help, deliver. Uh, because of those immediate crises that David and the other psalmists happened to be in. They were emergency prayers for emergency crises that happened. Now, less frequent, but I tend to think having an even greater significance would be the emergency preparedness psalms. These are the psalms that are directed to the believer toward seeking God, directed to encourage the believer to know God more deeply, uh, directed to encourage the believer to have a greater degree of faith and trust and reliance upon the Lord. In other words, having that strong and growing relationship with God in such a way that when the emergency crisis comes, the believer is prepared. Uh, and we need to be prepared because those times will come. Uh, most of the Christian life will be the way the psalmist has described it in Psalm 71, verse 20, where he prays to God and says, You who have made me to see many troubles and calamities. Uh, the NIV translates that many troubles or troubles many and bitter uh, the New American Standard says, troubles and distresses. Uh, the King James says, great and sore troubles. We can take it for granted, the scriptures say about the Christian life. There will be many troubles and calamities. And so the emergency preparedness psalms are those which seek to do something very significant in our lives. These are psalms where the petitions ask God to form us and to transform us by his word so that when these times of attack and crisis come, we will respond far more quickly in the direction of dependence upon God. These are psalms that point us to a conscious dependence on God, a constant reliance upon his presence and power. These are psalms which teach us to prepare for the bad times by strengthening the foundation, strengthening the foundation of what it means to walk with God in obedience and to worship God in spirit and in truth. Now, the classic emergency preparedness psalm is the very first one in the Psalter. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. 
the wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked is, is doomed, or the way of the wicked will perish. Now, this is how we prepare for the seasons that will seek to wither our leaves. This is how we prepare when, uh, for the necessarily it will happen, the very storms of life, when the wind, winds of the storms of life will threaten to blow us away. Our preparation comes from our delight and our meditation and study of God's word. Because that word of God trains and transforms us so that we are actually able to live in a world of wickedness and trouble and respond in godly righteousness. Now, the Apostle Paul points in the same direction with respect to the word of God. In that famous passage in 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul says all scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. And then this last line there, for training in righteousness. And Jesus taught essentially the same idea in his high priestly prayer, that petition we find in John 17.17, 17, where Jesus prays to the Father about the disciples. Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Or in other words, Father, take your word, and by your word, set my disciples apart for worship and service, and make them equipped for worship and service by transforming them into godly servants, those who are trained in the righteousness that Scripture teaches. Now, this line of thinking leads us to the main idea that shapes how we look at this passage from Psalm 119 this morning. That is to say, we can, we can sum up our guiding truth in this way. Since, as Jesus taught, God's word is God's primary means of sanctifying grace, we need the Spirit's application of the word to our lives in order to achieve that training in righteousness that equips us to keep the way of the Lord. And especially in light of the emergency crises that are going to keep coming into our lives. Now, some context and background for this particular passage and, and also the idea of, of putting this into the larger context of Scripture. Because of this truth of God's word and what it does in our lives, because of the truth that we as Christians are going to face a continual series and seasons of troubles and calamities, the prayer here, with its several petitions, teaches us to pray for that emergency preparedness that the word can give to us. In other words, the reason we need to pray as David prays in these verses is because the spirit uses God's word as the means of transforming and sanctifying grace. God's word is that which trains us in righteousness so that when the difficult days come, we can respond to them in that manner that is worthy of the Lord 
who has placed his name upon us as Christians. Now, to begin with, I want us to think about this, this set of eight verses all together. And I want us to consider what they actually teach together. There are eight verses here and seven petitions, seven key petitions for God's uh, word to do its transforming grace. But it's actually the eighth verse down at verse 40 that is the summation and the main petition. There, David prays this way. Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. In other words, verses 33 to 39, these seven petitions are all directed toward that concern. So uh, the first petition is, Lord, teach me the way. The second petition is, Lord, give me the understanding. Uh, the third petition is, Lord, lead me in the path. Uh, the fourth is, incline me. That is, incline my heart to your word. Uh, the fifth petition is, turn me away. That is, turn my eyes away from that which is worthless. The sixth is, Lord, confirm me. Confirm me in the way that will actually give me the proper fear of you. The seventh commandment, Lord, turn me away from that which would make my life a reproach. Now, all of these prayers are motivated by David's spiritual hunger, stated in verse 40. Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. Now, as we have already indicated, uh, that desire and concern is really the essence of the fourth beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. To hunger and to thirst for righteousness is to hunger and thirst for God's word, which trains us in righteousness. But we also need to see the connection here to that first part of Paul's prayer that we studied back in Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 to 14. And especially if you want to turn there to look at verse 9, uh, the first and second petition that we find in that verse where Paul prays this, that God would fill you with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Now, the first part, the first part of Paul's prayer petition there is about grounding in the scriptures. Paul prays that we would be filled with God's spirit, filled by God's spirit with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, to be filled by the spirit with the knowledge of God's will is to be filled with the word of God. In fact, to be filled with the Spirit is to be filled with God's Word. Uh, let me show you how that's what the Apostle Paul teaches. That is, to be filled with the Spirit of God is to be filled with the Word of God. In Ephesians 5.18, we have a significant passage where the Apostle Paul is talking about really uh, elements of worship and how we ought to be worshiping, especially with, with singing and so forth. So Ephesians 5, 18, he says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. That important phrase. Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now, 
if you've ever studied Ephesians and Colossians, you recognize that in Colossians chapter 3, beginning of verse 16, we have a parallel passage. And so in this parallel passage to Ephesians 5.18, Paul writes this, Colossians verse 3.16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you, richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So for the Apostle Paul, we have something here that's interchangeable. To be filled with the Spirit is simultaneously to be having the Word of God dwelling in us richly. So that we can say there is a, a spiritual and functional identification. To be filled with the Spirit is to be filled with God's Word. And to be filled with God's Word in the proper way is to be filled with God's Spirit. So in this first part of Paul's prayer, he prays for the believer to have this fullness of the word of God dwelling in him richly, which is tantamount to being filled with the Holy Spirit. And then the second part of Paul's petition is to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And so we would note that every one of David's seven petitions has this as its main goal and its main concern, to walk the life of God's way, to keep God's statutes, to observe God's law wholeheartedly, which all comes together to mean to live in a manner that is worthy of the name of Jesus Christ. So the point is this. What all of these verses teach together is that we are to pursue the life that God blesses. So we are to hunger and thirst for righteousness. So we are to come to God's word, praying for God's spirit to use God's word as the primary means to sanctify us and to set us apart so that we are trained by the word of the Lord to keep the way of the Lord. Now, as we continue to look a bit more specifically in our text this morning, I want us to consider these, these verses, having considered them and uh, in, in the wholeness of them, now to consider them according to two functions that we can actually discern in these seven petitions. The function of guiding and the function of guarding. What these petitions guide us toward and what these petitions guide us against. So moving then to consider how David is praying for guidance toward the way of the Lord. And in this regard, uh, five of these petitions that David gives us here are directed in just that way directed toward keeping the way of the Lord. So briefly, uh, verse 33, the first petition is, teach me the way. And verse 34, the second petition, give me the necess necessary understanding. Verse 35 is the third petition, lead me in the path. Verse 36 is the fourth petition, incline my heart uh, to the word. And then verse 38 would be the sixth petition in the set, but it's confirm me 
and that which produces the fear of the Lord. Now, although these petitions, these these spy petitions altogether speak to God of, of guiding us in his ways, no two of these say precisely the same thing, which means that they each deserve its, its own, as it were, uh, focused study and meditation. But this morning, my focus is going to be on two of these five. And, and that's not to say that uh, the other three are less significant than these two that we're going to focus on. Rather, it's, it's the practical concern uh, to keep this message from being a Puritan-length sermon. Uh, that's probably a blessing to you, and it's probably a blessing to me. So I want to focus on verse 33 and verse 34, the first petition and the second petition. Now, verse 33 says this, Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. So the first petition is essentially this, Lord, teach me the way. Now, the word the way here properly refers to all of God's statutes, all of God's testimonies, all of his law, all of his commandments. In fact, we can say that it really refers to all aspects of the word of God. We can truthfully expand the idea of the way as it is stated here in verse 33 to be comprehensively the way that is the whole counsel of God. All of the truth that God has spoken in his word. So this prayer is that God would teach us his word and all of his word, all of his holy will, all of the way. But in addition, we need to think about why this prayer is needed. David asks God to, quote, teach him. Now, not because God's ways are too hard to understand on their own merit. That is, in lots of ways, God's way is not too difficult for us to see and to understand. A, a lot of God's way is clear. A lot of it is straightforward. Not everything, but a lot of what God has to say in the scriptures concerning his will and his way is clear. So David isn't praying about the unclarity of God's word. Teach me because your word is unclear. But rather, the issue that David is praying about is the issue that lies within us. We still have that condition within us as believers that the Apostle Paul describes as the reality of indwelling sin. So coming back to a passage we looked at before, Galatians 5.17, uh, Paul describes that condition this way. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. Uh, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Now, this is what makes obedience to the ways of God, the will of God, or the word of God. This is what makes obedience a genuine struggle. This means that the way of the Lord is a challenge to us, uh, such that it's going to keep us in a state of struggle. So there's something here we need to know. 
about the Hebrew language as we find it in the way David has prayed that God would teach him the way of God's statutes. It pertains to the idea of teaching that we find in the Hebrew language and in the Hebrew culture, such that the ideas of teaching and learning, what the teacher says, what the student learns, are always conjoined and connected in such a way that knowing and doing are always connected. That is to say, to be taught by God means learning God's truth in accordance with producing obedience. Now, this is very different from the way we have developed this in Western culture. In other words, we can speak about head knowledge that can be separated from heart knowledge. And we can say that head knowledge doesn't really make an impact on how we live. Uh, we know it, but we don't do it. We know it, but we don't live it. Now, that disconnect is something we must never impose upon the teaching and learning function that we find in the Hebrew culture and language. To actually learn something, as it's described in the Old Testament, means we actually change within the process of learning. Which is to say, that which we truly come to know is going to be that which we truly learn to do and truly do. So if God teaches us, this necessarily results in both the knowing and the doing. And that is why David can say without a worry that he's going to be presumptuous, that if God teaches him, then he will observe God's statutes. If he's truly taught by God, he will not only know the way of God's statutes, but he will keep them because he will have been changed in that direction. Again, there's this definite connection between being taught truly by God, by his spirit, through the word, and a life that is committed to obedience, a life that practices that walk that is worthy of the Lord. So when you and I come to the word of God, uh, all of the scripture that we present within the worship service, uh, the exposition of scripture in the message, or when we come to the word of God in our personal Bible reading, we are to pray this prayer for God to teach us so that we will actually live in obedience to his word. Now we come to verse 34, the second petition, where David prays, Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. So the essence of the second petition is, give me understanding. Now, uh, you notice something here? I, I just said from verse 33 that David's prayer to be taught is not so much about a failure or an inability to understand what God's word is saying. Rather, I said, it's really the lack of ability in us to actually do the will of God without the full transforming help of the Spirit working in us to will and to do God's good pleasure. But now David prayed for understanding. 
that as he's, he's saying that, he needs understanding in order to keep God's word with his whole heart. But remember I said that a whole lot of God's word is straightforward. We don't obey it because we haven't been transformed. But now David is praying for understanding. He's praying that for maybe things that are actually difficult to really understand, really difficult to get. But I want us to notice that that's exactly the same thing in Paul's prayer. That God would fill us with a knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. This is what David is praying for. Lord, give me the kind of understanding that I may with my whole heart observe and keep your law. This actually is looking at the reality that some of God's word is difficult to understand. Some of God's ways are difficult to comprehend. And our obedience will de be deeply compromised if we don't really understand what we are to do. And therefore, in light of this, David prays for understanding. David is asking to see things God's way in some greater measure. He's asking for a greater depth of spiritual wisdom and understanding and insight because he knows that his obedience will be far more faithful if his understanding is more enlightened spiritually. Now I want to make this concrete by looking at a significant dimension of God's will that looks straightforwardly obvious but in fact hasn't been obvious and hasn't been clear to the people of God, neither in the Old Testament times, nor in the New Testament times, nor in the history of the church. And what I'm referring to is the second greatest commandment. So let's begin with the Old Testament. The Old Testament reference to love your neighbor as yourself is found in Leviticus 19, verses 9 to 18. So I want you to listen to what God says there. And I want you to listen to what God shows there by just a number of examples that he gives. So Leviticus 19, 9 to 18, God says through Moses, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after you harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard, you shall not strip your vineyard bare, nor shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Verse 13. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the death or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. Verse 15. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. 
verse 16. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. Verse 18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, in this passage, God has given to his people a great number of specific examples to both to show and to tell, to illustrate, and then to give principles by those illustrations what it means to love one another, to love one's neighbor, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. But by the time of Jesus, uh, through the tradition of the scribes, uh, the oral tradition, which the scribes and the Pharisees taught as though it were the word of God, which had been in place for several hundred years, the tradition had been teaching Leviticus 19.18 this way, which Jesus quotes in Matthew 5.43. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, remember what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about why we need to pray to deeply understand what God says in his word. Because understand this, hating your enemy as a second part of loving your neighbor never shows up in scripture. Nowhere in the Old Testament does it ever say, you shall love your neighbor but hate your enemy. But for the disciples, for virtually all of the Jews at this time, this way of understanding it seemed to make sense. Hating one's enemies seemed to make sense. In fact, it has seemed to make sense everywhere in the world. You love your own tribe, but you should not love the enemies of your tribe. Rather, the opposite. You should never aid and abet your enemies. You need to hate them. So Jesus rejects the oral tradition, and he gives the true and definitive understanding of Leviticus 19.18. So in Matthew 5.44, Jesus says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? For if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, this understanding, when Jesus gave this, was not just a new way of thinking for the disciples. It was a very hard thing for them to comprehend. It required the strongest kind of teaching from Jesus. For instance, the parable of the Good Samaritan and Jesus bringing salvation to the Samaritan woman at the well, plus 
in the book of Acts. Remember this. It required Peter having an actual vision from God of a sheep being brought down out of heaven, filled with all sorts of unclean animals, and the Spirit saying to Peter, take up and eat. In order to teach Peter that he needed to be taking the gospel of everlasting salvation to the Gentiles. You see, what it means to love your neighbor as yourself is where the people of God, historically, have failed the most. And where we have needed the strongest work of God's Spirit and His Word to bring us to obedience. Now, it was, in fact, this kind of love your neighbor as yourself and love your enemies that was powerfully characteristic of the church in its first 300 years. And, and even after the church became official, uh, this understanding of love was such that in the Middle Ages, the Christian faith had virtually eradicated slavery in all of Europe because of the understanding of the gospel, because of the understanding of the second greatest commandment. And then there was the tremendous moral failure because that understanding lapsed. And Christians in the 16th and 17th and 18th centuries became a part of the slave trade and the slave industry. Christians treated other human beings as somehow outside of the dimensions and scope of the second greatest commandment. And if you've read any of the readings of writings of Christians during this time, all sorts of rationales were contrived to claim that we did not really have to treat all other human beings with the love by which we love ourselves. Let me tell you a story. Last night, Julie and I had the privilege of going to dinner here in North Carolina with two former BCHS students, now married, been married for a while. They're both 30 years old. Together, they did a stint as missionaries. Uh, they were sent out by a big church that has a large missionary outreach. And so they joined this missionary team overseas. Within six months, they were sent home under church discipline. Now, here's what happened as they told us. Within a few weeks of arriving on the field, what they saw in their leaders was a treatment of the indigenous peoples who were often hired as domestic servants, a treatment of the people that they came to bring the gospel to, a treatment of them in a very subservient manner. And so th these, these young believers attempted the, the, the proper Matthew 18 private approach of going to the leaders and, and, and essentially saying, the way you're treating these people is wrong. Now, let me make this clear. Um, there are places in the world where Hiring people to be domestic servants is, is even essential for those people for jobs in their economy. That's not what, not what we're talking about here. Uh, most of us have done something like this. For instance, 
um, uh, I love the fact that I don't have to do yard work anymore. I hire that done. Somebody comes to my yard and they mow my grass and they clip my hedges and they take all that stuff away. But when I go out to talk to somebody that I, has, I have hired to be my servant in that sense, what does the gospel tell me to do? Uh, and, and this happens often. You're always trying to encourage people who do yard care to, to not overlook something, to fix a sprinkler head. But any number of times, I would have to go out, and the man's busy. you got to stand there until the man sees you, and you get his attention. And so it's always appropriate to say, I hate to interrupt you at this point, but is there something I could bring to your attention? That is to say, the connection is, is not boss-servant, boss-slave. The, the connection is two human beings who are equal. Now, I love the fact that, that there were times that, that I was able to basically hire someone to help Julie with the housework, especially when we were preparing to move last spring, last fall. But, but once again, when that person is coming and doing her job, if, if we needed to talk to her, it was, excuse me, uh, can we interrupt you for a moment? Could we, could we share something else with you? What I'm saying is, is that there's a right way of dealing with people that you hire to serve you as a Christian. Always. So that's not what we're talking about. What these young people shared with us last night was what was going on in the mission field was the same kind of approach that characterized so much of the missionary endeavors in the colonial era, which was called Western paternalism. It was the idea that we are here as Western missionaries and we're here to work with you who are less civilized, less cultured, less educated, less intelligent than we are. And missionary historians have said that Western missionaries treated indigenous peoples as though they were children. And, and modern missionary missiologists recognize that that form of treating the indigenous peoples of Asia and Africa was absolutely wrong. It was so far short of the second greatest commandment. It was a great sin. Now, my, my, what I'm going to say here is that if, if the story of our young friends happens to be true, what we have here is, again, the inability of Christians to understand what the second greatest commandment means. And, and, and so their story is really my case in point. We can, in one sense, understand the words. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We need prayer to really understand with our whole hearts how to be led properly 
in the way of living that out in our lives. We are to hunger to obey God's word with a whole heart so that we can pursue the path of obedience. That path would be opened up to us so we can live in a manner that's worthy of the Lord. And so we consider these verses. According to their function of guiding and then guarding what these petitions would mean with respect to our lives. What they would direct us toward and then what they would guard us against, which is where we come to the last two petitions. Where in verse 37, verse 39, David prays, turn me away from the worthless, turn me away from reproach, praying that God would turn us away from anything in our lives that be a contradiction to the way of the Lord. So verse 37, petition 5, he says specifically, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. In a nutshell, turn me away from what is worthless. Now the word worthless here can also be translated as vanity or that which is a vanity, that which is vain and useless and empty. It's not the same word that Solomon uses in Ecclesians 1, Ecclesiastes 1, 2, where he says emptiness, emptiness or vanity, vanity, but they're very, very similar words. Uh, in fact, we would consider them to be synonyms. Uh, both of them speak to something that has an, an emptiness like a vapor or a breath, something that has no substance, something that has no real uh, reality to it, both in a material sense and in a moral sense. And the petition is that God would guard us by turning our eyes away from looking at such things. Now, the world, we know, presents many vanities. And John the Apostle says there's the lust of the flesh, the sexual appetite that's gone immoral and perverse really produces emptiness. And then there's the lust of the eyes, where greed and avarice, we know as Christians, never satiated. Envy, covetousness, never kindles any joy in life. Uh, avarice and envy will squeeze one's soul into diluted feelings of deprivation. Rarely does anybody ever find real satisfaction in the amount that one possesses. Emptiness results, and it destroys all ability to be content. And then the boastful pride of life. Power, prestige, privilege, position. Those things that name the children of pride. We need to see that they lure and trap. Yet we're born with a natural disposition to hanker after these things. We're vulnerable to them. Only God can turn our eyes away from these things. Satan desires to fill our lives with emptiness. <laughs> Do you see how Satan uses the oxymoron? He wants to fill our lives with emptiness. And even Christians can fall prey to this. That's why we have to pray. Because only God can revive and vivify our lives with a love for his way. That 
is what we need to seek. To be guarded in this way. To have our eyes turned away from looking at vanities in order to be revived in the way and the word of the Lord. And then the last, verse 39, petition 7, where David also prays, Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. In other words, Lord, guard me by turning me away from anything and everything that would make my life a reproach. Now, David is expressing the fact that he loves obedience, but he's still a fallen man. He has sinful failings which could bring disgrace and reproach to his life if ever he were to relax his guard. So this prayer is is David not relaxing his guard. This prayer is David truly dreading anything that would make his life a reproach. And perhaps it really was only after David's sin with Bathsheba where he clearly relaxed his guard, where he truly and sadly allowed ungodliness to enter into his heart, where carnal desires got the upper hand. Perhaps it was only at the end of that bitter reproach from both God and man, perhaps it was only in genuine repentance that David came to the full understanding, the full reality that he needed to dread that this would never be repeated again, to know that not only must he exercise the tightest reign over his own heart, but that he needed to pray this way. He needed to know we can't battle indwelling sin on our own. Holiness, godliness requires prayer. This prayer, that God would turn away anything and everything that would bring reproach upon our lives as believers. Because David knows that God's rules, God's ways, God's precepts, God's commandments are good. Now, I want to close with a reflection again upon verse 40, where David says, Behold, I long for your precepts, and your righteousness give me life. The law of God always points to the righteousness of God. God has bound himself in faithfulness to all who trust in him. And he will justly and righteously give spiritual renewal, even revival, to all his saints who call upon him with a whole heart for sanctifying grace. Now for us, with the New Testament revelation of God's righteousness in the gospel of his Son. This last part of this prayer, for God to give us life in his righteousness, means that we would be revived through the knowledge of the righteousness of God, that which is to be found in the very righteousness of Christ. God's righteousness has been revealed in Jesus Christ as a gift of righteousness to all who believe. It is a righteousness that is imputed, not imparted. It is a righteousness that is credited to the believer as an act of free grace through faith. It is God's great declaration 
that a great change of status has taken place before his holy and wrathful justice. That justice which once condemned us as guilty because of sin has now declared us righteous by the declaration of God himself. It is God's righteousness imputed to us that is the basis of God declaring us righteous in his sight and to know that we possess the imputed righteousness of the Son of God in all of his divine and human perfection and holiness is to kindle the spirit of spiritual revival and a hunger and thirst for righteousness, practical righteousness within us. Because there's no greater encouragement before the high and holy one who inhabits all of creation than to know that we are perfectly just in his sight by his grace. And that greatest of all statements that the father made about his son this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, given to Jesus because of his righteousness, has become ours. For all who possess this perfect, justified status before God. Because if God is for us in this way, then who or what can ever be against us? And therefore, what an encouragement to seek in prayer for God's truth to sanctify and to make us holy because of such a revelation of mercy and grace in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Our God and Father, teach us to pray for your will and for your ways to be done in us. Teach us to pray for the knowledge of your will in all spiritual understanding and insight that we may live and walk in a manner that is pleasing to you that's worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Enable us to keep praying, our Father, as we come to your word, that we would be sanctified by the truth and that your word is truth and that we would understand that its grand purpose breathed out by you is to give us your teachings and to correct us and to reprove us and to train us in righteousness so that we who are named by your name can be fully equipped for every good thing and purpose you called us to do in this life, preeminently that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name, amen.